0: Hey folks, hope you're all doing well. This is Sam, and uh, I just wanted to welcome you to the second episode that I've posted to this podcast feed of the American Lodgeman Roundtable. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you are still listening to the Whitfield Report uh, podcast feed, technically, but this is an episode of the American Watchman Roundtable, which is a group podcast that I do every week on Sunday nights with my uh, colleagues Joshua Johnson and Gabe Ikeboni who are also political commentators, where we discuss uh, basically the news of the week and discuss current events and political topics. So this is essentially a group podcast. And I was going to create a, an RSS feed and a podcast feed for that show, but I figured since I already have this uh, show going for the Wifield Report, and since this feed is already distributed across multiple platforms... Uh, I figured I would add this show, even though it's a separate uh, podcast, technically, to the same feed as the Whitfield Report, if that makes sense. So, you're listening to the American Watchmen Roundtable, and uh, I hope you enjoy this week's show. We cover a lot of uh, interesting topics, including... Roger Stone's arrest by the FBI on Friday, uh the current uh political climate in Venezuela, and uh the aftermath of the government shutdown. Hope you enjoy the podcast and uh please uh rate and subscribe and let us know what you think. Enjoy the show folks, right after these brief messages. And I can't wait to hear your podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Now go out there and make some podcasts. All Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the uh, American Watchman Roundtable. I am one of your hosts. Sam Whitfield, uh, Broadcasting Live, joined with me this evening by uh, my two co-hosts, Gabe and Josh, as usual. Um, Tonight's first topic that we're going to discuss on the Roundtable is the uh, arrest of Roger Stone, which happened on Friday, hence why I titled this episode, Mueller Tries to Stonewall Roger Stone and uh just jumping into what happened uh i guess Roger Stone uh was arrested by the fbi on friday taken out of out of his house uh in what in uh, west palm uh early friday morning what's uh what's interesting and what really caught my attention about this though in particular was the fact that uh, this is a guy who was arrested on not even any conspiracy charges, as far as I know. More like, uh, it was just more like, uh, you know, election related stuff. And yet, they brought in a full, uh, you know, full, uh, bodied SWAT team to uh, basically raid his home with, with guns and everything. And there was this big, uh, show that was made about the arrest and uh also coincidentally we've since found out that there was a CNN reporter who just happened to be in the uh area coincidentally uh at the time of Stone's arrest so that's very uh suspicious to me uh but in the meantime i want to go ahead and uh open up the floor to either Joshua or Gabe and uh ask them what's your uh thoughts on the arrest of uh, Roger Stone.
1: I uh, just want to let our, give our viewers a bit of background information that I uh, have kind of been following on this. So as I understand it, the basic charge against him is that he was not colluding with the Russians, but that he was colluding with the people at WikiLeaks who had either hacked uh, or at least gotten a hold of Hillary and the DNC's, e- not Hillary's emails, the DNC's emails, and, uh, and began releasing them. And the quote-unquote smoking gun, if you will, uh, in this is an email that he sent to another Trump campaign official who's not been identified by the investigation yet. Uh, like, like, like they've identified they they know who they they know who they think it is, but they've not told the media yet, so we don't know. But the general consensus seems to be that it was probably Steve Bannon, uh, according to what I've read. And so uh, Stone supposed, so Stone sent this email to Bannon or who we think is Bannon who the media thinks it's probably Bannon saying that uh, WikiLeaks is going to be dropping a few more bombshells in a couple of weeks on a weekly basis and uh the thing the thing that and and they the argue the the charge is that based on this email that's proof that Stone knew that that WikiLeaks had more and they were planning on releasing them on a time schedule and that he must have been in on it and uh it doesn't really make sense because if you remember correctly, and maybe some of our listeners or you guys already remember, uh, Julian Assange actually came out at the time and said he was going to be keep on making weekly releases of the DNC emails until the election. And so it seems that Roger was merely reading the news and then told Bannon what he saw in a newspaper, and that's supposed to be the smoking gun. And that's what I know of it. But I, I just think that's some interesting background for our listeners because the charge is incredibly weak and has nothing to do with Russia to begin with. But then when you actually find out that it looked like stone may have just been saying something he saw on the news, it becomes really quite troubling to think about why he was arrested this way.
0: Well, what strikes me, uh, Josh, isn't it's interesting that you, uh, bring that up. I was listening to the, uh, Dan Bongino, uh, podcast from Friday and, uh, they were discussing Dan and his uh, on-air partner/slash sidekick/slash whatever you want to call him. They were discussing uh, how the timing of this is too uh, it. It's it's too uh, convenient to be just coincidence that this happened because I guess uh, Mueller, as usual, hasn't really found anything substantial to uh, try and tie Trump to any Russian collusion thing. And uh, so he needed to pr- produce results. And so in my uh, in my view and in the view of several other uh, pundits, this uh, whole arrest was more or less for the cameras. Uh, specifically, I want to go back to the fact that this uh, CNN journalist just happened to be in the area when um, when uh, Mueller's FBI team arrested Stone. Um, I also guess Stone has said that he's not going to testify against uh, Donald Trump. His words were, I'm not going to bear false witness against uh, the president. And uh, I guess he made bail and he's out right now on that. And uh, as one of our uh, friends from the uh, Am First Coalition Facebook group posted. Uh, I guess Roger made like a like a video uh, meme today where he said, "Oh, you you you've got me. Here's the here's the proof, and it's just him with a bottle of uh, Russian vodka." Uh, and uh, at this point, I think that's uh, as far as Stone's collusion with Russia. Uh, goes
1: well. Here's the here's the thing, and this is something that I, I think I warned about way back when they first gave Mueller this job. Uh, and if if you're on the right, you've probably heard over and over again how government bureaucrats can't be trusted because they're going to constantly try and grow their own office and grow their own department and grow their own budget and and do anything they can to justify their job. And it's funny that conservatives never realize that this if if that is true, which I would say it generally is, it also applies to the military and it applies to things like this. And the problem with these special counsels is exactly like you said, Sam, once the government has committed to spending taxpayer dollars and quite a bit of them in terms of this investigation, anyway, they have to at least find something or else they, they risk undercutting their own, uh, their own legitimacy, if you will. So what happens, and this has happened in almost every single one of these special counsels we've had uh, from George Bush onwards. You, you appoint some guy who goes in there and he spends forever basically looking and looking and looking for anything to justify all the money they've spent on this. And it ultimately comes down to a very underwhelming case committed by a marginal official who may not have, who, who's not even within the president's inner circle. Still I'm slightly different because of his relationship with Trump. But generally, and, and the thing is, even though he is a close advisor of Trump's, he's not held any post within the government, um, like in many of the other cases I'm thinking of. But uh, they find some marginal official or whatever, charge him with something. He goes away for uh, a pa- amount of time, 10 to 15 years usually, that seems almost comically. It's, it's almost comical because if a normal person were actually found guilty of any of these things, you know they'd be going away for a longer time. But like yeah. you said, this is all for the cameras. So they give them a little cushy sentence of 10 to 15 years. And then about five or six years down the road after a new president's come in and the media has kind of forgotten about this and the people have forgotten about it, they'll pardon them. And the political class, the member of the political class will strut out of his gilded cage and rejoin his peers. Um, so that's that's the basic problem with these special counsels. A word on the CNN thing. Uh, it, the, the FBI has proven itself about for about the last two or three years now to be either comically inept or disturbingly corrupt. It's uh, certainly fallen quite a bit from the days of J. Edgar Hoover. And I uh, I I don't have too much faith in them. I, I I veer between questioning whether or not the leadership of the of the Federal Bureau of Investigation has become disturbingly partisan, or if they really are all just that bad at their jobs. Neither well, thought to the company.
2: Well they're well, partisan. Yeah. They're partisan but, bureaucrats.
0: Yeah, they're they're partisan bureaucrats. They've also been corrupt for more than just uh, the last two or three years. I was uh, I, I recently read a story how, I guess, 25, 30 years ago when the FBI was cracking down on uh, organized crime in the, in the mafia, there's a pretty famous uh, boss of the uh, Irish mafia by the name of uh, Whitey Bulger. Uh, some people in this audience well, have probably heard of Whitey Bulger. But, but uh, White, Whitey Bulger was like a big-time uh, gangster. But at one point, he got uh, arrested by the FBI and was basically turned into an an informant. And uh, basically, Bolger convinced the FBI to basically say, "Okay, well, I'll be your informant as long as you uh, allow me to continue doing my stuff." So uh, you know, he he was he ended up going to prison. But what happened was uh, during his time in prison. He killed uh, two of his fellow inmates in in prison and I think wounded like two more severely. But the FBI pretty much like swept under the rug because he was uh, giving them information. And I believe uh, Bolger had like two more, you know, rival gang members whacked or something on the outside and You know, he wasn't like brought up on any of that. And that, and that was because the FBI swept under the rug just because they were getting information from him. So, I mean, FBI corruption is nothing new. Uh, Well,
2: I wouldn't, I wouldn't, well, I mean, I don't know the particulars of that. I think that's just a trade off that you make to, you choose a small, you buy off a smaller fish and deal with the consequences to get a bigger fish, um. Maybe it is corruption. I, I don't know, but yeah, I um, mean,
0: it, it's certainly well, it's certainly incompetence. They didn't even know really slap him on the wrist, as far as far as I know. So. Well, true.
2: I mean, they're, they're probably. I mean, we're talking about back then. There probably is some corruption there. Um, uh, the the whole the the whole Roger Stone thing. It's it's interesting that they don't that there's no mention in the indictment. Of that collusion with Russia or even collusion with WikiLinks is a crime because that hasn't even been established yet. So this goes this goes to like what Josh mentioned about before, which is how grand juries have to justify their existence. Um, they they it's always something it's always something procedural or administrative in nature. Like you broke an administrative rule or you broke an ethics rule. It's it's never the it's never the big ticket kind of thing where there actually are charges and they're provable of like espionage or foreign corruption because there there is no law that says that foreign governments cannot be involved in, in our elections. It that that is never there, right, there's, me, there's no me, law that bans that.
1: Let me let me rephrase, what because you, you're right, but but the way you phrased it kind of bothers me. I, I think what you're trying to say is there's no law that says foreign governments can't try and influence American public opinion or uh, have lobbyists. There is a law that says you can't be an unregistered lobbyist, but that line has become really blurred, and I think that's kind of what you alluded to when you said espionage with the Maria Butina case, because right. as far as I can tell, she she was not an official lobbyist. She wasn't doing actual lobbying work. So she didn't need to be licensed. She was doing the kind of, you know, well, it, it, she wasn't dealing with the government. She was dealing with the NRA. So, you know, uh, do they need the license? That's, you know, it gets kind of blurry. The
0: The other thing I keep hearing, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Maria Butina because, uh, Josh, because the one thing I keep hearing from uh, the left and, you know, people against Trump is they keep saying, well, you know, Trump... Ha- Trump has ties to russia in, in in business doesn't that you know isn't that even a little suspicious and it's like well no he was he was a uh, i mean it amazes me that like you know people keep keep bashing on trump and yet they keep they keep forgetting that like prior to him being president he was a uh, he was like a multinational businessman of course. Of course, he had business dealings with uh, Russia.
1: Well, here's what comes to mind to me for that. The concern is that there's a conflict of interest because the president used to have was, as you say, a multinational businessman who had uh, financial dealings in many countries, including Russia. But here's sort of the flip side of that one. Almost I don't care who you are. Even if you're not a businessman, you cannot tell me that every member of Congress and every president does not have significant financial dealings that go on in other countries, including sometimes Russia. And so and I I bet you could make a conflict of interest case against almost every president. But the thing is, you have to sort of recuse yourself from those business dealings. And as far as we know, Trump has done that. Second, if Trump really was, if, and, and you guys know this because I'm the one who wants us to be friendlier with Russia all the time. Our listeners know that uh, if and, and I've criticized Trump quite a bit for this. If there is an actual conflict of interest there, then why on earth has Trump been harder on Russia than uh, the, the, not Trump per se, but the Trump administration? Why has the Trump administration been harder on Russia than almost any other presidential administration in our lifetimes? And why is Trump appointing hardliners to be our new ambassadors to, to Venezuela in the in the little uh, the little kind of um, I don't really want to call it a conflict yet, but the kind of uh, the, the, the situation going on there?
0: Yeah, that's 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 a good point. And uh, I guess that kind of segues into our other uh, point with uh, Venezuela, which I really don't know that much about so uh
1: as always i can uh give you the foreign policy background and then uh, maybe i can can ask you guys some some questions for once yeah yeah yeah. um so uh so basically uh i'll give you the long and the short of it kind of like i did on ukraine a while back um so in venezuela as our listeners probably know in 2013 hugo chavez died of, uh, of a battle he had been having with cancer and his vice president, Nicholas Maduro took the helm Maduro's only previous job, which I think is worth mentioning because it sort of gives you an idea of the competence of the, and, and, you know, I'm not saying normal people can't do jobs, but jumping from being a bus driver to, to vice president. No, he was a bus driver, foreign minister, vice president, and then president of the country. Um, so that was his only previous political experience. He had been a, a bus driver and he was a, a, a rising member of the union. And so that was how he came to Chavez's attention. Uh, But anyways, Chavez dies, Maduro steps in. Uh, Venezuela under Chavez had been uh, pushing through some pretty out there social spending. Uh, But for a while, it was able to work because what Chavez basically said was, look, we have the largest oil reserves in the world. I'm going to nationalize all of our oil companies, and we're going to pay for all of this with oil, which works for a little while until, of course, the oil market's not doing so hot. And then you realize that you don't really have much money. So the problem was essentially that he was using a finite source of wealth instead of creating wealth. And, uh, and, and the thing is, in and of itself, that was a big mistake, but it doesn't really fully explain the problems Venezuela has, because as our, as our viewers or listeners might also note, notice, Venezuela didn't really have the mass starvation and mass unrest going on in the streets until a few years after Chavez dies, which brings us back to Maduro, who, uh, while Chavez was a socialist, Maduro is a flat-out hardline communist. He has openly compared himself to Joseph Stalin. He has made jokes about his his hairstyle, his mustache, and his swept back kind of, uh, I don't know what the term for the style of hair he wears is, but it looks like Stalin, and he, he's made comments to the effect of saying that's intentional. And he has nationalized far more than Chavez ever did. Well, Chavez nationalized the oil companies and a few energy sectors and also did uh, things in the line of universal health care. Maduro went out almost as soon as he became president and began saying, well, the oil markets aren't doing so well, which means we're not able to spend as much money to give people quite as many uh, they don't have as much money to spend anymore. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to nationalize everything and we're going to implement price controls and we're going to try and basically take total control of the economy in order to try and band-aid over the, the growing problems of not being able to fund everything with oil anymore. And so that's when you begin seeing the Soviet-style shortages where people go to the, 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 the shopping market in Venezuela and there's no toilet paper and there's nothing to eat and the so-called Maduro diet uh as it's called down there starts to kind of get going and in spite of this amazingly enough uh maduro has been able to maintain a certain popular amount of support even though the media in the u.s portrays it as being almost all the people against him anybody even if even anybody who knows how government works knows you cannot have a zero percent approval rating and stay in power for as long with all the problems you have as long as this man has You have to have the support of a certain segment of the population plus power structures like the military within the country. And so uh, Maduro has been able to win elections, which were they're they're not rigged, but I and they're not exactly fair anymore like they were under Chavez. Under Maduro, there began to be a lot more. uh, It was it was biased in his favor, if you will. Let's put it that way uh, without being flat out rigged. You know, so, for example, all of the media was was pro Maduro because uh, all the media has been nationalized down there. It's all state media uh, and things like that. And, and so, it,
0: and, it with, and, it, and it wasn't with Chavez?
1: With, with Chavez, he did not nationalize everything. Uh, and so, for example, in the coup that happened against Hugo Chavez in 2005, if you flipped on a Venezuelan news station, there was about a 50-50 chance that you would see stations supporting the government. And then there were stations that were still privately owned, and that did not want to support the government. And So the, the news coverage was overwhelmingly anti-Chávez in 2005. And in 2005, the military coup, uh, Chávez was taken on a helicopter to a military base, and what ultimately saved him was, uh, just like Erdogan in Turkey, his supporters came out in the street and basically said, we won't recognize the new government. And after that, he started to get even more radical. Um, but still, nowhere near as far as Maduro. And so uh, anyways, back to back to my point with Maduro, the country is almost it's deeply divided. And uh, now the uh, the opposition party, which won the elections for parliament this last year, the, the, it's kind of funny. It's sort of the same situation we have uh, in America, kind of, because the people elected Maduro to another term as president. But at the parliamentary level the opposition managed to win a majority for the first time since Chavez uh, was elected president way back in 1999, I believe. And so uh, the the new parliament has, uh, after that, Maduro began trying to govern by executive order, which didn't go so well, and, and the government began to become even more dysfunctional, which brings us to today where the speaker of the parliament, whose name I'm going to butcher, but I think it's Ga- Gaidao. It, it looks like Guidao, but... Um, Anyways, he has declared himself as the new president, uh, has declared that Maduro doesn't have the authority to govern, and at least half of the population is with him, and understandably so, because they're starving and there's no food. And what food rations there still are, the PSUV, which is Maduro's party, only gives out to people who are still supporting the government. And it gets dicey because the military has come out and said that they're going to stick up with, they're going to stand up for Maduro's government until his term is out, at least. And that brings with it the the possibility if, if tensions keep escalating and, and nobody reaches an agreement, it, it risks the possibility of a civil war, which I think would be disastrous for America. But now maybe you have questions or or I have questions. I don't know where we want to go from here.
2: Well,
0: I, I keep I keep hearing, uh, you know, from from neocons about, oh, we need to we need to either intervene or we need to back, you know, the rebels against Uh, Maduro now I'm not I'm not saying that Maduro is a good leader it kind of seems like he's a he's a he's kind
1: of he's incompetent and he got his job because at the time Chavez died he was the most loyal person in Chavez's cabinet and and that and the way he came up just speaks to that fact because you don't go from being a freaking bus driver to being the head of a, a local party district to being the head of the union, to being the foreign minister, to being the vice president without being fanatically loyal. And that's what he was basically known for um, during Chavez's life. And so that's basically why he got his job.
0: It kind, it kind of seems like it would like uh, it kind of seems funny, though, if that were the case, like if he if he were like a bus driver or something.
1: Well, that was, that was his his. uh he boasted about it when he in his inauguration speech i was a humble bus driver and thanks to chavez i got all these government posts and now i'm your new president and he when he was first elected he was basically elected to be another term of chavez and then he quickly turned to full-on communism and has begun openly comparing himself to stalin and doing things like that which i've already sort of mentioned but he's he's a far different character for example um I'll, I'll put it to you this way. When Chavez was president of Venezuela, you could go into Caracas and you could get a McDonald's. You can't do that anymore. Not just because there's no, no food to, for the McDonald's to sell you, but because the McDonald's doesn't exist. It's been taken over by the state. And the reason Maduro kept on doing that is because people were reliant on all this social spending, all these poor people, because Venezuela has the, the majority of people in Venezuela were poor before Chavez, poor during Chavez, and now poor during Maduro. The thing is, chavez tried to use all this oil money to have this social spending programs when the when it collapsed they weren't able to to give out quite as much money to people which means that for ordinary people they could afford less for example which meant in maduro's mind apparently because he's far further to the left than chavez ever was that we need to nationalize everything and we need to implement price controls. well because well i can't give people enough money to go out and buy their groceries i'll just take control of the grocery store and we'll lower the prices for groceries and you can quickly see why that's going to become a problem oh well the the farmers aren't gonna aren't willing to keep uh, to, to sell us their their uh, produce for that amount of money well take over the farm and then we can just have it and you know sell it at the price we want so that's sort of how it, it domino effect into it after Maduro became president it quickly became a domino effect of the government taking over more and more and things failing at an ever-increasing rate
0: hmm kind of sounds like the uh, the Democrat Party if they had their way here uh, but I mean uh- all, all, all jokes and slides aside, um, it just does. It's still no matter how bad uh, Maduro may be, and believe me, he does seem like a piece of uh, work. The neocon argument that we need to go in and somehow like back rebels or take out Maduro itself is uh, that's a big no-no. Just because anytime we seem to intervene in these
1: conflicts.
0: We inevitably make things worse because we create a power, a power vacuum.
1: Here's the thing, and, and if you, our listeners probably have already reached this conclusion, but communism does not work. And so if you, if you want... If, I, I understand that it's sad what the people of Venezuela are going through. I feel bad for them. But ultimately, that, it's not our government's job to improve their lives. And the thing is, as we're sort of starting to see... They have the power to improve their lives if they want. Communism is going to collapse there one way or the other. It might be bloody, but the thing is, if we start arming one side or the other, for example, I'll, I'll put it to you the way I think it would happen. Let's say that tomorrow uh, the the government that we have recognized, the transition government, uh, decides that, well, we're going to use force to take Maduro down because he's not stepping down yet. And it's not come to that point. They're trying to negotiate, but I'm afraid if we keep pushing, it's going to come to that. But let's say they did. Let's say they took up arms. First off, where are all these people going to get their guns? They don't have any. There's gun control, hardline gun control in Venezuela. And uh, two, the military in Venezuela, it's a Latin American country, but against unarmed people or people who are even moderately armed, it's still pretty powerful. They receive quite a bit of uh, military support from uh, Russia, China and Iran. And so, uh, and, and when I say support, I mean, they're getting equipment and they're getting money and things like that. I'm not saying that, that Russia is going to intervene here like they did in Syria, because that wouldn't happen. But uh, if it came to open conflict, the rebels don't stand a military chance. And if we, if we were to intervene on their behalf, we could extend the war, but it's, going to, it's not going to lead to them winning the war, not unless we went out and flat out invaded the country on their behalf. Uh, and if you if you're arming and extending this conflict, it's just going to become a, a refugee crisis. There's going to be even more refugees pouring up towards our border. And some people are going to say, well, Josh, if they have a civil war, that's going to happen, even if, if we're not intervening, that's going to happen anyway. Yeah, it is. But it's not going to be happening for four or five, six years on end if we back one side and it leads into a stalemate that neither side can seem to win. So it it, it to me. There's no real, ju- there's no good justification to go in because it just creates more problems. And also, who to whose benefit is uh, is intervening and helping the new government take power? Because there's there's no real way that this benefits the average American. It's going to benefit a Texaco executive who is going to be able to get his hands on some Venezuelan oil they've not had access to for about 20 years now. But uh, there, and it's going to get them some some new cheap labor to come and be maids at their house instead of American maids but uh, it's it's not going to benefit you or me one lick if we well, let, let, in let, let me the...
2: interject here because i haven't heard anybody advocate military force before and there are there are non-military actions that you can take if if we're already assuming these people are starving then mm-hmm. it, I, I don't know how much worse it can get for them in terms of us being involved in some form um I mean, because I haven't heard anybody honestly say that we're going to go in there with military force. There are non-military options that you can take. Whether it will improve the situation or prevent a civil war, um, I, I don't know if that will happen. Um, but there also are uh, there, there also are just sometimes humanitarian concerns that have to be taken into account as well. Um, and I, and, I, and I do agree that it won't necessarily make the average Joe's life better, but most Americans generally wouldn't want to see people starving to death under under a dictator if there are certain actions that you can at least try that don't involve military force.
1: Well, I, I first would say Marco Rubio, even before we've gotten to this point in the crisis, he's been suggesting that we topple the government there for some, some time now. Uh, and he's the most vocal proponent of intervention now. But even uh, in, in in terms of I, I think you'd have to define humanitarian aid because I don't think many people would be opposed to sending food to them. Uh, although I as a, as a general rule, I'm in favor of trying to reduce the amount of money we spend on foreign aid because it's far too much. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever help people. I'm just saying we need to make sure that we're spending more money on our own people than we are on people in other countries. Um, but, and, and going back to the point, I don't think anybody would be too concerned about food, but, uh, when when we're coming to the kinds of aid that people are discussing sending, if it does come to a conflict, it's usually weapons and it's fuel and it's money to help fund the war. It's not so much food for the ordinary people. It's sort of the same kind of failed strategy we've seen them try in Libya and Syria.
0: Well, and, and I mean, not to be this guy, but in order to get the food, uh, to the actual people. A lot of these countries, you do actually need the military to go in, in there and help make sure that it gets to, to the people.
1: Which that's, that's, that's the problem in Africa. You, you can send crates of food to Nigeria or whatever, but usually what's going to happen is all of that's going to end up in the presidential palace. And it's like, oh, free food for me and for my soldiers. None for exactly. you guys. Exactly. It becomes a political tool uh, like what what food there is in Venezuela, the PSUV, which is the, the ruling party under Maduro, has uh, they've had a, a program for a while now. It was started under Chavez and it was originally funded with oil. But you can apply if you're a party member now. It used to be everybody. But under Maduro, they've changed it to only members of the party. So only supporters of the government get them. But they get they'd give out uh, once. a I I believe it's either once a week or once a month. And I think they may it may have used to have been weekly, but then they went to once a month as they began to run out of food, and so the boxes became slightly bigger. But they would give you food, free food, basically. And uh, it's it's been weaponized under Maduro for the last several years now, with the PSUV basically saying, well, if you're not a party member, you're not a supporter of the government, so we're not going to give you any food.
0: Indeed. Uh, Rick Garrett in the chat makes an interesting point. He says, uh, I'd watch China during this whole thing. It's an opportunity they've been after for a long time uh Rick do you mean to uh take over venezuela or, or uh intervene or um well i'm kind of i'm kind of guessing that that's what you're uh talking about about but let us know and yeah i mean that kind of
1: Can I ask, is this is this a question from a viewer of ours that's coming in
0: yeah it's in the its in it's in the live chat so oh. um he, oh, he's saying I I can clarify, um, but yeah, I mean obviously, just to his point, real real quick, kind of for just in in general, we're not the only ones with interest in Venezuela. You know, I think certainly other countries could could get in
1: on this too. Here here's the thing, it's not about helping the people. When the U.S. government says that they want to change the government in Venezuela, it is to please. Uh, large oil companies that donate to our politicians because if Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. There are other countries that are problematic in Latin America. I believe Honduras is one of them right now, where uh, the government has uh, has has basically waged wars against their own people. But there's no oil to be had in Honduras, so nobody really cares. Um, so it, it's it's not about. Helping the people, even though that's always the justification. At the end of the day, about getting access to the world's largest oil reserves. And
2: well, they're also, also is the argument they're in. It is our sphere of influence, and they are in our backyard. So, if they cause geopolitical instability, it does impact us one way or the other. I,
1: I do, I do agree that I think that the, Monroe, the thanks to the Monroe Doctrine, I think it makes more sense to intervene in Venezuela than say in Syria. I just don't think it's necessarily a good idea to intervene in, or in a way that would lead to an extension of a conflict, because I, I, I don't see anyone in our government being able to muster the political capital necessary to quickly end it by saying we're going to invade and we're going to install a new government. And I wouldn't support that anyway, because I, I don't think that we should be going around and picking and choosing uh, governments for other people, especially when it puts American lives at risk to no apparent benefit for our own people. Well, we, but, uh, but
0: well, we, oh, go, go uh, ahead. My point essentially being
1: I don't see that being the option. So, when people talk about intervention and a possible civil conflict here, wh- the way I see it is how I described it, where there's a civil war. One side, if nobody intervened, one side would probably be swiftly beaten. And we end up backing that side enough to keep them alive, but not enough to actually win the war, which means we're essentially extending a pointless conflict which generates refugees that become a problem for us.
0: Right. Uh Rick, Rick Garrett did clarify his uh what he was saying and it, I this is actually what I thought he was trying to make because this was an, this was another point that I actually thought of as soon as he he brought it up. He says, "I would expect China to seize the opportunity as to securing resources by any means necessary." Whether that is keeping the current regime in power or toppling it, well, Rick, uh, I I just have to say, uh, I um, I understand that point. I'm I'm not sure if uh, if geographically speaking, if, if if it would be wise for China to do that, though, just because, uh, you know, China is so far away from um, you know, South. South America. Uh, I'm not saying that they couldn't do it. I just, it is far for them to make that distance.
1: But uh, did, did Gabe just say China under his breath?
2: Oh no, I didn't.
1: I thought somebody just went China. Uh, but uh, no. um, I, uh, I, I I think um. To what was the gentleman's name? Sam. Uh, Rick Garrett. So to Rick's kind of point, if if China or any other European country tried to intervene here, then I would definitely say we should, because I I do believe in the Monroe Doctrine, which is saying this is our sphere of influence and and we shouldn't allow them to come in and uh, set up a no fly zone or start sending troops to support Maduro or whatever. If that were the case, then, yes, definitely, I'd be saying deploy our deploy our forces, because that's a direct challenge in our sphere of influence. I discussed this the other night with my uh, friends in Moscow, and uh, I we had a bit of a, a slight disagreement because the the conversation initially started with them kind of joking, how can America declare the the president of because we recognize this this new gentleman who declared himself president as the the new legitimate authority. They said, how can America appoint a president anywhere else in the world? And I kind of I kind of jokingly responded to them. I'm like, oh yes, well we do it all the time in Latin America because historically we have. And uh, because it's our sphere of influence. And the point I was trying to make to them was, you know, I I understand that maybe you disagree, but you can't expect You can't expect Washington to heed your complaints at all, because this is our backyard, just like Ukraine is your backyard. And so uh, there needs to be mutual respect there. And uh, and then I also reiterated the points to them before that, you know, whether or not uh, America does anything. The Maduro government's days are numbered. If, if they're going to continue doing business as usual, because communism doesn't work. You yourselves know that you yourselves, the people I was talking to in Moscow, you yourselves have told me that you, even Putin has acknowledged communism doesn't work. So Maduro, whether or not, what regardless of what any outside power thinks here, that government is not going to survive. If, if it does, it's going to end up being like North Korea. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'll close with, with two thoughts. Um, I mean, I would see China interfering only to cause us problems and distract us from what's going on in their backyard. Um, and from that perspective, it might make sense for them just to to, to distract us. Um, but I will say that the second point is, to, and this backs up your point, Josh, the, the Madero government is not going to survive whether it comes into an open conflict or whether it gets resolved diplomatically, um, because it's the there the entire electoral process i don't i don't want to call it rigged but it, it it wasn't it wasn't that he got 68% of the vote when you have allegations of widespread voter fraud and you're buying people off with of food um, because i don't know in what universe you could win 68% of the vote you lose parliament it, i i i don't know how that would feasibly happen um, but his, I mean, his government is numbered one way or the other, whether the military turns on him or the public turns on him just because he will find himself entirely isolated, um, diplomatically. And at some point somebody will turn on him. Um, I, I don't know exactly if the military in Venezuela is secular or who's in charge, but at some point I wouldn't be surprised if there is a military coup to remove him. Um, and- I'm his, actually, I can envision that happening pretty easily.
1: I'm actually in agreement with Gabe on this one because I have followed Venezuela for years. Way back when Chavez was still alive, I was following it. And uh, ever, since, ever since Chavez died, like within weeks of him dying, there was speculation about the possibility of a military coup. Because the other thing that needs to be factored in here is Chavez was a military officer. He was a, uh, he was a member. He was a paratrooper colonel, I believe. And he actually did try to take out the government in a coup of his own back in the 1980s. It didn't work, and he went to prison, and that's how he rose to prominence and was able to come back in 1990 and win an election. Um, But uh, So he had the respect of the military, if for no no other reason than that he was one of them. And uh, and the military officers could generally agree that Chavez, even if he was making pretty big mistakes, that he did have the best interests of the Venezuelan country and people at heart. Uh, Maduro, you, you can't very well say that at this point, because the man has ever since he began losing ground in parliament, which was fairly early on, he has become, and and also with the comments comparing himself to Stalin and just becoming more and more openly communist, he has basically made it clear that he's in it for the power and he's there to stay in office no matter what. And there has been speculation almost from within weeks of Chavez dying that there might be a military coup. I'm honestly surprised there hasn't been a military coup yet. I'm curious as to what the officer's reasoning is right now for backing uh, his government thus far, especially when this seems to be the biggest challenge. I know in the statement the officers gave in their press conference here the other day, they said they were doing it to defend Venezuela's sovereignty. So maybe they think that the, the event is is outsider-driven or something, but I, I am generally genuinely curious as to what their reasoning is. Because I don't understand why they still stand with him either.
0: Yeah. Well, one of our channel uh, admins. This was a comment directed at me. Says, uh, "You know me, Sammy. I'm definitely not opposed to the idea of a united American con- continent. Let's let's do this shit." Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I Jolly, uh, personally, I personally believe that I I do like I do like your sentiment. Uh, but the problem is, is I I I believe that's kind of what Bush 41 wanted to do with the whole, or no, excuse me, not Bush 41, Bush uh, 43. I believe that's what he wanted to do with the uh whole, uh thing the, the proposed alliance between like the United States, Mexico, with the whole, Amero, thing. Oh, well, uh,
2: you know
1: that that kind of solves the that solves the problem in their eyes, I, I, that'd be a hard pass, a hard no for me, but for, for people that are not opposed to open borders, then I can see that being George Bush's dream of saying, Oh, well, I've solved illegal immigration by simply getting rid of the border. Uh.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, I, I guess my only point in all this, I mean, I, I I'm still reading up on what, on what went on in, in swell. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm still looking into it more, more and more, but to, but to me, uh, the one narrative that I've kind of picked up on, I, I read a lot of the left's, uh, think pieces, uh, just, you know, because I like to see what the enemy, uh, camp is saying somehow Maduro's whole failed state right now is Trump's fault. Uh, along with everything else that the left loves to say And, uh, I don't, I, that one is just utterly ridiculous to me.
1: I'll, I'll chime in kind of like this. So, um, you guys who are my fellow hosts know this, but I like Ronnie a Um, she's a, a left leaning journalist, but she sometimes make good, makes good points. And I kind of disagree with her on this. Uh, she had a good video out on the situation in Venezuela the other day. um, and she tried saying, and and this is something that I completely, disagree, I completely disagree with her, even if she makes a few good points. So the basic argument was, well, socialism hasn't failed in Venezuela. It's been sabotaged, which of course is what they always say. But uh, she's, she's wrong because no matter how you square it, it doesn't take an economic genius to realize that people don't have money. So I'm going to take over a restaurant. So I'm going to take over a farm. So I'm going to take over and then you take over everything. And and nobody's making anything anymore. It doesn't take a genius to realize that doesn't work. But she's correct in so much as that we have certainly made problems there worse with sanctions. For example, uh, you hear about uh, Venezuelans not b- being able to have access to some medicine and drugs they need, uh, and that is that is partly because of Maduro's policies of simply taking over practically everything. Uh, It's also partly because, though, we have imposed for years now very tough sanctions on Venezuela, just like we have on Iran. And part of that means denying them access to certain products, even if they were part of an aid package, for example, or even if those companies wanted to sell to uh, the Venezuelan government or whatever. And so uh, that has exasperated the situation. So it's we've not sabotaged that We, we have and we haven't. I mean, we've We've made we've not made things easier for them. We've made things tougher. But at the same time, you can't blame it all on that either, because it doesn't take an economic genius to realize that you cannot have the government run everything and expect it to have good results. Even even in other uh, either even in other communist countries, they've they've come to that realization, except for in North Korea. And so it 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 again it speaks to how incompetent Maduro is. The fact that he basically thinks i can come out and be joseph stalin and it'll work so yeah even even his boss didn't think that uh, even even chavez when he was alive never never went that far so the the fact maduro tries to band-aid everything over and thinks it'll work it doesn't so it, i, I mean, it, yes, it, on it, sanctions we shouldn't have put sanctions on them i disagree with doing that uh, i'm generally opposed to sanctions because they don't actually help ordinary people there in those countries. They make life harder for them in the hopes that they will rise up and resist their government and blame their government for, for it. But in the end, many of those people realize that we are partially to blame, even if their government's also at fault, and, uh, and it ends up giving them a worse opinion of us in the long run. Um, so i I would not have put sanctions on venezuela but i'm also i'm also not going to say that that's the only reason that the the economy collapsed there because it isn't
0: and uh you know and just to clarify too i I think we can all safely say here um as host that none of us were fans of uh chavez by by any means he he wasn't a great guy uh but in but in comparison uh, to Maduro, he was, I guess, less shitty.
1: I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying he's a, a great, a great uh, guy. I just, the problem I've had with, with, with it is when Chavez was still alive, they were already calling him a dictator and saying it was a dictatorship, even though it wasn't yet. Chavez won every election he participated in free and fairly. You can't really say the same about Maduro because, as I've mentioned multiple times, he began taking over literally everything and expanding the role and power of the state and and becoming a dictator and governing more and more by decree chavez did; he had to constantly work either through referendum or through the parliament which he had majorities in. maduro does not um so the, the the problem the problem is i am opposed to intervention in venezuela and i know that the the portrayal of chavez when he was alive was an attempt to justify it the coup against him in 2005 was orchestrated in part by the cia and it didn't work because back then people didn't want to most of the people in venezuela were still with the government the situation hadn't collapsed as bad as it is and some such as myself would argue that that coup partially played a role in leading up to where we are today because it pushed members of the psuv including chavez he never went as far as maduro but after the coup in 2005 he definitely went harder left and began trying to have the government take control of more things. Um, so it, it's a complicated situation with people at fault on all sides, really. Um, the only good thing I can say about Chavez is that he made some pretty good criticisms of American foreign policy. Uh, I'll put it that way, but I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of his or anything like that at all. I'm, I'm uh, vehemently opposed to socialism.
0: And, uh, you know, with that being said too, we have a, uh... We still have plenty of issues here at home that we need to that we need to address, like the uh, like the government shutdown, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, this is our I think this is our third or fourth week on the podcast talking about this shutdown. Or geez, it feels like we've done a whole like TV series on it. So or something but anyway i I guess the shutdown is out to come to a close or why i'm not really sure sure but uh gabe it kind of sounded like you had some stuff on the shutdown so what's your uh take on it my friend
2: well just background for our readers um but the uh shutdown did officially end on friday for three weeks as it were um And the events, the events leading up to it, um, were pretty much that um, it wasn't well reported at the time, but that Trump was unhappy with the shutdown, um, and that it was not. Even so, it wasn't really so much Trump as it was Um, Republicans were starting to really get antsy in terms of the consequences of the shutdown and if. Reports are to be believed, it sort of came to a head for the White House when I believe it was um, a couple flights were grounded at an East Coast airport because they didn't actually have enough air traffic controllers to, um, to, to manage those flights. Um, and the the running joke for the shutdown has always or at least from my, my perspective what I've heard is um, that as soon as air traffic controllers pretty much walk off the job or in uh, air or planes can't take off because they don't have enough air traffic controllers the shutdown will end and and it turned out to actually be the case um, and it 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 depends whether you consider it a loss or a win for trump or a draw um there are some like ann coulter who have gone so far as to say um that basically trump is more more of a wuss than hw um i would debate that hw was pretty much a wuss much more of a wuss than i think trump is um but in terms of the consequences, you know, we'll have to see what happens. It is only three weeks, um, but the question will be in three weeks whether Republicans are going to be more any more unified behind fighting over a wall than Democrats are. And right now, um, considering what has, what has happened over the last few weeks, um, I would say I'm not too optimistic about it because the one thing that's clear is – Republicans are not united behind this idea and they're not united behind um, kind of this American first agenda, whereas Democrats are united behind the idea of, we don't like a wall and we don't want a wall. And you can say that Democrats supported it in the past and they did, um, but you know, fair is fair in politics and until, until Republicans actually come up with a strategy or get behind Trump, There's not much. uh, I don't see Trump winning another battle in three weeks if it comes down to give me money for the wall or the government shuts down again.
1: I think the president would agree with you because I saw he tweeted earlier today that he actually had uh, he said there was a I believe he phrased it. There's less he thinks there's less than a 50 50 chance that there'll be a deal. So less than half a chance there'll be a deal out of the talks they're having right now. Well, and, and I guess to that that point, I guess I would add, uh, I think the I think the comments about him being George H. W. Bush, no, th- read my lips, no new taxes. This being another episode like that, I think those comments are a bit premature. Although I think the risk is very real, uh, because if he does totally end up caving on it in three weeks, I think uh, I think it would more or less be the end of him with his base. Um, because a lot of us, myself included, are upset about the shutdown coming to an end. I know my initial reaction to seeing him tweet earlier this evening was, well, why did you end the shutdown if you don't think there's a chance for there to be a deal? And uh, um, I, I think the risk is real, but I think those, those comments are premature at the moment. We'll have to see what happens in three weeks. If there is no deal or consensus at the end of these three weeks, I think Trump needs to declare a national emergency and try building the wall that way. And the most likely outcome of that is that he's probably going to have that shot down in court. But at that point, at least he can say, look, I've played every card I had. I've tried everything I can possibly do. And uh, here, here's what happened. The, the court shot it down. And that would galvanize, I think anyway, I think that would galvanize the right to uh to basically go into 2020 saying we need to win this because our we need to accomplish judicial reform and we need to accomplish it now uh because we do we can't do anything at all it seems like and Uh, that's that's not new with the wall that's been something from almost day one with the travel ban with everything the courts step in and try and overrule the president
2: yeah, I, I would say the safer course for Trump is to do exactly what Josh suggested, which is, you know, try and engage for three weeks, and if you don't win, do the emergency, and then pivot to other issues. And like Josh said, if it doesn't work, then you can always just get your base galvanized by arguing um, that judge that it's judges legislating from the bench, which has an additional advantage in terms of. The, the one issue that most conservatives who were distrustful of Trump dr- voted for him on were – and these are the voters that are not considered his base – was that he would appoint conservative judges to the court. So if you're looking for an issue that you can bring up in 2020 that might make some Republicans who are skittish of Trump vote for him again, this is the exact way to do it. I mean as cynical as that sounds, is it – is it sort of sticking it to Trump's base to a degree? Yes, but even Trump's base probably wants conservative judges that are not going to basically sell out the country for these high-minded notions of di- of, of diversity and multi- multiculturalism just for multiculturalism.
1: So, I, I, I disagree with you, kind of. I don't think it's cynical or that it's selling out Trump's base because— Speaking as a member of that base, to me, the way I think of it, and this is how why I say he should do it, if he's declared the emergency and it gets shot down in court, what else can he do at that point? I mean, he, we've tried everything. The system itself is blocking us. It's time to change the system and then do that. Now, if the Republican Party, uh, if, if Trump got reelected and changed the judges and then the Republican Party completely dropped the anti uh, globalism uh, completely dropped the America first agenda, then that would be selling them out. But as I see it, it would be a first step in actually getting our, our agenda rammed through there. Um, well,
2: it, it also I, I think one of the I think one of the little one of the things that has gone unnoticed in this debate, because it's mostly been Trump versus versus congressional Democrats, is that it, the re- Republicans are not united behind this this America first agenda, and it it gets hidden behind the concept of well Republicans have voted in lockstep with Trump. Well, yes, that's that that's technically true, but that's what most partisans do. They vote with their president. The thing is that Republicans didn't line up behind Trump in a way on this issue the way we saw, say Democrats line up behind Obama. Um, with Obamacare um, or or or, uh, 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 women, or or the climate change legislation it, it died in the Senate. It didn't die in the house but it, it points to a Republican party that is still going through this is your favorite word Josh realignment And so that realignment has not completed itself. So there are holdouts within the party that that pop up during debates like this where you need every every vote that you can get and republicans don't have every vote you can get democrats meanwhile have every vote they can get because they're completely united behind the concept of walls are bad
1: this is slightly off topic but it's still germane and i just wanted to bring it up because i think it's kind of funny but uh going back to ann coulter's george bush comparison If anything, the way it's sort of looking, and and this ties into, you know, the risk is real, but right now I think it's premature, especially when if you look at the way it is right now, it looks like, if anything, the third party independent spoiler will hurt Democrats more than us. Because I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the CEO of Starbucks came out this evening on Twitter and said, I'm interested in doing an independent centrist presidential run. And Democrats freaked out. The Democratic consultants freaked out because that has the possibility to suck more voters away from them than it does the GOP. And going to my favorite word, I actually think that kind of candidacy might just help us a bit more in terms of realignment, because it would demonstrate that the suburban voters are going to this guy and he's sucking most of his support away from the Democrats. So. it it would be, I think it would be beneficial with the realignment, not just the realignment, but also helping us win the white house again.
2: Yeah. I, I did hear that Howard Schultz is, is his name that he was, he was thinking about mulling a bit. I I don't think he'll honestly do it, but I, I do think it points to how actually, how, how decent a shot Trump actually has at getting reelected. The, the wall debate government shutdown aside, um, because there are multiple, as we've discussed, there are multiple ways that this can be played where Trump doesn't come out as damaged as I think he's portrayed as.
1: you Have any thoughts, Sam?
0: Um, I would. Sorry, I, I, I was looking at something on a on a on a Discord real quick. Um, I. Here's here's my whole thing with the with the shutdown. At this point, I here's what I've asked it, people is uh other than the government employees, and even with the government employees, I would ask, how much has your lifestyle really changed because of this shutdown? Right, we keep hearing about. Government workers uh, starving and whatnot. Yet supposedly, I I was just looking at like a, I was just looking at a whole bunch of. I wouldn't really even call them memes, although they were in that format. Basically, um, basically, uh, they were all showing examples of like all these restaurants and like private industry uh, places, you know. Offering like discounts and you know food discount counts for um for government workers. Um, as I said last as I said last week, I really don't have uh, sympathy. I have sympathy for like mailmen and uh government workers that actually do stuff, but like DMV people who just sit behind a desk, you know, are our bureaucrats anyway. And and so,
1: I don't don't think the DMV offices closed down. That's a state level. Uh, (laughs) That's uh. they don't, I don't think the DMV people went out. I think maybe you're referring to people sitting at their desks up at the Hoover building for the FBI.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So, so I have disdain for people at the state level too. Let's be, let's be honest, but also like, you know, bureaucrats, Basically, what I'm saying is the whole narrative for why this shutdown is bad is because, you know, supposedly government workers are all starving, right? When, clearly, we've seen the free market kick in. And again, Josh, I know you... I know that you're not as much of a free market guy as perhaps I am, but this is an example of the free market kicking in, ironically, to help government workers. And so, you know, my... My whole thing is, if the, uh, if the left wants to use these poor government workers as an example for why the shutdown is bad, then, uh, you know, I think that's going to be hard.
1: So I'm, uh, just to clarify, I, I'm not so... Everybody portrays me and Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon as being against the free market, and I think there's a fair... I think you can say fairly that... There, there's a false people falsely conflate capitalism with the free market. And that's partially because everybody's gotten used to calling it free market capitalism. But I discussed this one night where I said to people that Tucker Carlson, uh, we were talking about something slightly different. But I said, and Gabe agreed with me, I think that the system worked for years for most of the people until relatively recently after the 1980s as a result of globalization. And so you can't really say that the free market in 1950s America is the free market in 2019 America because they are not the same thing. And uh, what what I would say I'm against is because I'm for private property. I'm for you being able to run and open your own business. What I am not for, I, I'm, I want an ordered economy. I want there to be uh, regulation to make sure that This system is working for everybody, not just for a wealthy top few at the at the top. And most people on the right should agree with that, because one, if we're putting America first, we view our country as a family. We view our fellow citizens as a family and we take care of our family. And two, if you don't take care of your family, odds are they're going to get pretty desperate. And that's when you start seeing people like Hugo Chavez or Nicolas Maduro or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez start winning because people are desperate. So uh, uh, that, yeah. uh, that's that's yeah. my whole trick. I'm neither I'm neither left nor right on that one. I'm kind of I'm, I, I'm like Father Coughlin in the 1930s. I'm against capitalism and I'm against socialism. I'm against them both. But that doesn't mean I'm against private property or against people being able to own a business either, because that's just not that's not accurate for my views. I'm, I'm more of a corporatist, you could kind of say in the classical Catholic sense of the word. Uh, well, so that's a discussion for a whole other time. I don't want to get us derailed onto that. Maybe we can do another episode on that one.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean, I think for now, it'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens within the next three weeks, and then if the government shuts down again. I mean, here's the thing: going back to the whole government government workers thing, I think they're going to get uh overpay overpay time right right because of this so my point is is despite all these sob stories that uh you've heard they're not hurting uh as much as people might think so
1: so i I think that kind of played a part in the the way i see that affecting trump's decision is i I honestly think, and I know I haven't discussed him yet, but Jared Kushner has given President Trump terrible advice basically from day one of his presidency because both he and Ivanka are internationalists and they're both globalists. And Steve Bannon, part of the reason he was finally forced out was because he kept on challenging Kushner too much and he's the president's son-in-law, so guess who he's going to side with? But uh, from what I understand, in addition to Gabe's points earlier about the air traffic controllers, Kushner was basically pushing Trump hard to end the shutdown because perhaps just like with Syria, Ivanka saw some people crying on TV, and well, you know, we can't ever have that happening. So,
0: yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but but but, you know, Ivanka's also a a millennial chick, and they get hypersensitive
1: with seeing. I I don't think either of them should be in the White House. I think uh, if 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 Jared wants to be involved. In in this administration, the best thing he can do, because that's it seemed to be his original thing. He wanted to do foreign policy uh, so he could so he could focus relentlessly on on pursuing a Zionist agenda in the Middle East. But if he if he wants a role in the government, I will gladly send him to Jerusalem and he can be the permanent ambassador to Israel. And we won't have to deal with him giving terrible advice on immigration or anything else uh, in the Oval Office anymore.
0: Yeah that yeah that yeah that's that's that sounds pretty good good to me. I mean what why why Ivanka even had a job in the White House is beyond is beyond me. I I remember during the uh, during the Trump campaign she said something like she didn't want a job in the in the in the admin in the administration at first. And of course now of course that was back when like that was back during the primaries when people were, were interviewing, you know, uh, the Trumps and, and almost no one thought that uh, Trump had actually had like a good chance of winning back then.
1: It's, but, uh, it's, it's kind of symbolically fitting because the Trump family almost seems to have the same divisions that the Republican Party generally has because Jared and Ivanka. Are more of the suburban kind of. I know Gabe doesn't like my 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 bad mouthing them all the time, but they are from the more kind of suburban uh, business kind of class of the party, and that's where their interests lie, and that's what they've kind of advocated for, and that's ultimately what we saw with the the Bannon power struggle in the White House. Because if I if I recall correctly, I think one of the final final straws was he basically used some pretty uh, let's call it impolitely blunt language towards the president's daughter and that was that was basically the i think one of the kicking points at that point and it's unfortunate because ever since then it seems like trump's been getting terrible advice from his uh his daughter and his son-in-law and uh it would be, it would be much more beneficial i think if they went somewhere else and we brought bannon back as an advisor because he's much more in tune I yeah think, I think. Trump's instincts and the base but
0: yeah I mean I mean the the presidency, and I'm not just saying this about Trump, I'm saying this about any any president, but the presidency does not seem like one of those things where nepotism is is necessarily a, a good idea. You, you know what you know what I mean it, it just
1: I'm not opposed to having your family in office i'm I'm opposed to having your family in office if they give you bad advice. And well, I'm sure you can just say, well, Josh, that's just because you disagree with them politically. And I'm not going to disagree with you on that. That kind of is the point. But when you get elected on one thing and then you have, because they are your family, advisors who are for something completely different, then that's where I sort of take issue. Well, I'm, right. a, I'm, a big,
2: yeah.
1: I'm a big fan of Huey Long and his brother Earl Long was constantly involved in his political machine. And they were generally in agreement with each other on the issues. So I have no problem with your family being involved. I have a problem if you're giving bad advice and you shouldn't be there. Oh, right, yeah, exactly.
2: Uh,
0: with that in mind, gentlemen, I believe we've gone like an hour, a good hour and a half now. So, do we want to, I, I guess, any more topics we want to cover or should we wrap this up?
2: Mm hmm. I have nothing else on my, uh, plate in terms of discussion.
1: I, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think that Gabe is sitting down and eating something right now. Uh, but, uh, uh, I don't know. I kind of, it sounded like right before you said that, it sounded like a plate in the background and I'm like, he's eating dinner while he's on the podcast. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> you know, that,
2: that would be background noise, but it's not me.
1: But, uh, but I don't really have anything either. Although I do want to say, I I think it's uh, generally our our podcast used to be pretty short, and they've gotten longer. And I think that speaks well of kind of how meaty our discussions have become. If I can, yeah. Add that.
0: yeah. And I also I also think I mean, w- look we we used to have it, We used to have a uh, a, a channel of our own for these podcasts, and uh, this is just kind of a behind the scenes comment on my part. Uh, I I lost the password for our uh, for our uh, channel. So my channel, the Whitfield's Report, uh, has 115 subscribers. So I think on one about our, our uh, first podcast we did, I I, I accidentally streamed uh, our the AW podcast to the Whitfield's Report channel, and actually we got a ton of views. Uh, on the on that one, so I've just been, so I've been streaming and also uploading the audio file to the podcast version for the Witch Holds Report, and I, I think that's actually working out. So, yeah, to answer some of your questions, ladies and gentlemen, that you have been tw- tweeting, yes, technically, this is a secondary, uh, this is a different podcast uh, that I'm, that we're doing, uh, but both of these gentlemen have been on the Whitfield Report uh you know separately separately and together, just you know, under that show name. So if it helps you guys, just think of this as the Whitfield Report Sunday edition, It, you know, if you guys need that in your in your heads who are watching. But uh anyway, yeah, I mean I we covered three topics tonight, so I'm happy. So Um, anyway, I guess, uh, that's it for this week and we'll have to see what's in the news, uh, next week. I, I also feel, uh, real quick, I, I, I feel like some weeks we have a bunch to cover and then other weeks I feel like it's so slow that we just repeat ourselves like, uh, last week.
1: I kind of it, it happens, but you know, um, I think the folks enjoy listening. So I don't know. I'll let you yeah. guys. I'll let the listeners comment on that. But, <laughs> yeah, we. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll if you don't enjoy have... listening, then why are you here? I guess is my actual question.
2: Do you under, understand? <laughs> we do do our best,
1: but
0: yeah, we, yeah, we 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 do our best. But even even the best podcasts have slow weeks sometimes. So. But uh, we'll also have to see our, how our download stats do in, on iTunes. But uh, anyway, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Sam Whitfield signing off. Uh, Josh, Gabe, if you, if you guys have any final uh, you know sign-off points, anything you want to promote, uh, uh, feel free to go ahead.
2: Other, them them we might, other than we might be discussing the government shutdown in three weeks, That <laughs> no...
0: Um no I, I all all I all I will say is that uh in terms of the the Whitfield report for those of you who were asking why I didn't do a podcast last night, it was because my uh guest cancelled uh last night uh suddenly. Uh all I will say is that for those who are curious, go go and check the uh, Owen Benjamin porcelain documentary out on YouTube. Um, I'll exp- Josh and Gabe, I'll explain what that is after we got off air. But um, anyway, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in, and uh, as always, good night. God bless and God save this great nation. Hey there, folks. If you've made it this far to the end of the podcast, I'd like to thank you very much for listening to the show. You are the ones that make it possible for me to uh, make an income from podcasting, and I greatly appreciate that just by listening to our show. You are helping us gain ad revenue. However, if you would really like to uh, help support the show, I encourage you to please donate to the podcast and become a supporter of the show. You can head over to anchor.fm forward slash Whitfield Report and click the support this podcast button and uh, choose the amount that suits you to support the show. Or you can click the link in the show notes and it will directly uh, take you to that page. If you can support the podcast, I really, really appreciate that. Anything that you can do to uh, help out is greatly appreciated. Even if you can't afford to uh, help financially support the podcast, I encourage you to please go on iTunes uh, or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and please leave this podcast a positive five-star review. That really helps us out here at the Whitfield Report. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next episode.